Please open your Bibles tonight to Titus chapter 2. Titus chapter 2. And we are going to be looking at this entire chapter together, verses 1 through 15. But we are going to read verses 11 through 14. And so as soon as you find Titus chapter 2, verses 11 through 14, please stand in reverence and let's read God's very word together. Paul writes to Titus under inspiration of the Holy Spirit. A word that is just as relevant today as it was when he first penned it. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. Waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Let's pray. Father, we want to be this people. We are this people. Through the blood of Jesus Christ, we are a people for your own possession. And I pray tonight, Lord, that you would make us zealous for good works. That you would purify us. That you would bring us to repentance. That you would bring us to acknowledge the glory of the gospel. And to live our lives in this present age in light of what you have done from eternity. What you've done in history. And what you will do to consummate your kingdom in the future. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Miley Cyrus is no longer Hannah Montana. And apparently she wants the whole world to know it. And no, I did not watch the pop singer's performance at the Video Music Awards. But I woke up the next morning, and as I began to browse through the headlines, as I began to look at websites, as I began to scroll through my social media timelines, I became aware, and I also became thankful that I did not watch Miley Cyrus's raunchy, highly sexualized performance on MTV's Video Music Awards, a performance that the Huffington Post called and praised as a high-spirited celebration of the freedom that young women are blessed with today to fully explore and celebrate their sexuality. Such blatant expressions of sexual rebellion probably leave many of us, hopefully leave many of us shaking our heads. It is sad. Her life is an example that, that should cause us to grieve and pray for her. But Cyrus, as she expresses herself in this way, and as we shake our head at the things that she does on television and the things that she does in her music, we need to be aware that many Christians, even people in this room, share a worldview with Miley Cyrus, a view that says... I am truly free when I am able to do what I want to do. A view of freedom 
that says, I have freedom when I have the right to define reality according to my own desires. I am truly free when I can do what I want, when I want, how I want. The song that Miley Cyrus performed on on national television was a song called We Can't Stop. And the lyrics say in the chorus, it's our party, we can do what we want to, It's our house, we can love who we want to. It's our song, we can sing if we want to. It's my mouth, I can say what I want to. And we gather in here this evening and we realize and acknowledge from the start that we do not want many of the things that Miley Cyrus is singing about. So how could I say that we have a similar view of the the world? We may not want the things that she's singing about, but we often define freedom in the very same way that she does. I am free when I'm able to do what I want to do. And a good way to tell how we view freedom, this notion of freedom and the way we live our lives, is to analyze. How do you respond when things don't go your way? How do you respond when things get in the way of what you really want to do with your life? I see this often in the way Christians approach work. Work is a necessary evil. And what I really want is to make it to the weekend. What I really want is to get to that point in my life where I don't have to do anything, where I can do what I want to do. And so I will work five days a week, but in five days, after I make it over the hump day, when I get to Friday, I can finally do what I want to do. Or the way we think about our children. When I think about If I just really can get in front of that television and watch football on Saturday. If I could really just not have to carry these children around during the week. It's the same worldview that Miley Cyrus operates with. And it's also the same worldview that keeps many of us from approaching the church and building deep relationships and friendships. Because we realize that if we got really close to people, if we really got involved in one another's lives, if we really let people into our lives, then that means that there are going to be things and there are going to be times when I'm not able to be as free as I want to be. That I will be inviting people in to speak truth to me when maybe I don't want to hear it. How do you react when things get in the way of what you want to do? What's your view of freedom? Paul is writing his letter to Titus within a cultural context that had its very own idea of true freedom. And it was an idea for many that was very similar to what freedom is in our day and age. This was a day when there were big, huge public festivals made to gods where there would be gluttony and drunkenness and partying going on. They would have orgies at religious temples and it is in this context where Paul is proclaiming the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ and the point that Paul is making in virtually every letter that he writes to these first century churches is that the gospel is not merely about providing a new moral code for you to abide by 
the gospel challenges our very understanding of what it means to be human. That's what the gospel's doing. In fact, what Paul is saying is what you used to think about as slavery and bondage when you were not a Christian is really what freedom truly is. And what you used to define as freedom, what you used to think freedom was, what you used to think would really make you happy if you just had what you wanted, Paul says that's not freedom at all, that's slavery. The gospel is turning our view of the world upside down. Upside down. Leaving no stone unturned. And the first point that Paul makes in this passage is the impossibility of freedom without doctrine. Look with me at verse 1 in chapter 2. Paul says, but as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. This is that word that we talked about last week that he uses as a, preface, as a prefix to doctrine. Sound or healthy doctrine. He continues to emphasize this. In fact, Paul has been building this concept of doctrine throughout this letter, even in chapter 1, verse 1, where he doesn't use the word doctrine, but you see it implicit there when he writes, Paul, a slave of God, and an apostle of Jesus Christ for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth which accords with godliness. And he continues down in chapter 1 verse 9 as he describes the qualification of elders or the qualification of the pastor of the men who, would, who were to lead the church. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word is taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound or healthy doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. And then in chapter 1, verse 16, as he's describing these, these enemies of the gospel, these false teachers who have come into the church and, and sought to undo what God is doing, he says, they profess to know God, but they deny Him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. The point that Paul is making in these verses and the point that he's making all the way through this letter is that you cannot separate doctrine from life. If you have a right understanding, if you are following the truth, if you are submitting your life to the truth of the gospel, to the teaching that God has revealed, then your life will correspond with that. There is no separation to be made. And here he makes that explicit. As he says in verse 1, But as for you, teach what accords with healthy doctrine. And then he goes on to list all of the ways that you are to apply that. All of these ethical commands, all of these instructions for how the church is supposed to live. How do you teach what accords with healthy doctrine? Well, he has instructions for older men and instructions for older women and instructions for younger men and younger women. And he has instructions for Titus and he has instructions for slaves. And when he gets through this list of instructions, he says in verse 10, the second part, so that in everything they may adorn or clothe. The word here comes from where, the word where we get cosmetics. So that they can put on like makeup the doctrine of of God our Savior. 
the doctrine, the teaching, the truth of the gospel is to be adorned with lives that are living in light of the gospel. That's Paul's point. For Paul, doctrine is not just intellectual truth about God. For Paul, doctrine is the application of the gospel to every phase of life. That's what doctrine is. And so you don't have even doctrine over here, and now let's come over here and let's apply the doctrine. For Paul, that's an impossibility. Doctrine is defined by application. Doctrine includes application. Doctrine would not exist if it were not for application because doctrine is application. It's when we take what God has revealed in His Word and we apply it to life. Church, this is why we don't get wiser biblically by reading books, even though reading books are very helpful. You could go, and, and let's say you're, you're wanting to learn about the doctrine of the church. And so you get on Amazon, and you're going to buy ten different books on the doctrine of the church. And you get them in your mailbox, and you spend the next three weeks doing nothing but reading those books. And, and you get to those books, and you realize that those books are pointing you to verses in the Bible. And so you begin to study those verses in the Bible. At the end of that three-week period... You cannot say that you have even grasped the doctrine of the church if all you've done is read those books. The reason why God reveals these passages to us, the reason why God reveals the truth to us is to transform our lives. We learn about the doctrine of the church when we take the truth that God has revealed And we take it into the trenches of one another's lives. That's how we grow. That's how we fulfill the very purpose for which Paul is writing this letter to Titus for the church. The purpose of the scriptures is transformation. And we learn about doctrines. We grow in our understanding. We grow doctrinally when we begin to love people, when we begin to suffer with people, when we begin to live out the truths of the gospel in our lives. God is not revealing Himself to make us smarter. He wants nothing less than to conform us into the image of His Son, Jesus Christ. And we shouldn't settle for anything less than that. That's his goal for us. That's his desired end. That's where he is taking us. When Paul talks about doctrine in this letter to Titus, he's talking about the gospel. That's what Paul means. The the sound doctrine is healthy doctrine. It's the truth about Christ. And, And the way that this doctrine frees us out of slavery is because every single one of us, before we came into contact with the gospel, before we came into contact with doctrine about God, with the doctrine of Christ, we were slaves to sin. The Bible tells us we were slaves to sin. We 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 couldn't stop sinning. God God asked us to do things and there was no way we were ever going to obey anything that God ever gave us to do. It was impossible. In our very nature, we are enslaved. We didn't even want to do what God required. 
And Paul teaches us that when the gospel comes, that slavery is broken. The chains come off. The chains come off and freedom is no longer defined by me carrying out the desires of my heart. Freedom has now been redefined because all of a sudden I now have the ability from the Spirit of God through the Gospel of God to live my life as God intends for me to live it. Paul says that's what freedom is. To, to find the purpose for which God created you. To be able to pursue truth and virtue and beauty. To be able to pursue Christ to the glory of God. If you are not a believer in Christ, you are not able to pursue that. Doctrine defines the true. It defines the beautiful. It defines the virtuous. And then it gives us the power as we encounter Christ through the Spirit to live our lives in light of it. Paul says that's what freedom is. But not only is it impossible to find freedom without doctrine, Paul says also that the impossibility of freedom without control. Look with me at verses 2 through 10. As we get through these verses, what I'm going to do is read through these verses and then we're going to come back to them and I want to point out several features, but there are several things that you're going to notice as we read through these together. Look with me at verse 2. Older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love, and in steadfastness. Older women likewise are to be reverent in behavior. Not slanderers or slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good and so train the young women to love their husbands and children. To be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind and submissive to their own husbands that the word of God may not be reviled. Likewise, urge the younger men to be self-controlled. Show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works and in your teaching show integrity, dignity, and sound speech that cannot be condemned, so that an opponent may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us. Slaves are to be submissive to their own masters in everything. They are to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith, so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior." And so as Paul commands Titus to teach what accords with sound doctrine, he is particularly concerned in this letter with, with the way that the doctrine is applied relationally within the community. And so he's got special instructions for older men. He's got special instructions for older women, younger women, younger men. He has special instructions for Titus. And then at the end, he has special instructions for slaves. And I want to point out a few things here. First of all, there is an emphasis in these verses on discipleship. There's an emphasis on the older, more mature, wiser members of the congregation being an example for the younger, less mature, possibly even new believers in the congregation. And so the older women are supposed to train up the younger women, and it's implicit that the same thing would happen with men. The older men would train up the younger men. 
You see, Paul acknowledges that there is wisdom in lived experience. You've got a 50-year-old lady who's been a mother for 30 years, has been through the things that you're going through, as you're a young mother now trying to figure things out. Paul says, go to her. Go to her. This is God's design. This is, this is God's plan. This is the way Jesus even modeled it for us as Jesus took disciples and personally invested in their lives. We see that pattern carried on all the way through the New Testament as Paul writes to churches, imitate me as I imitate Christ. We get these these letters to Timothy and to Titus, Paul's children in the faith. These men that he has discipled. This is the way it's supposed to be. And I think when we get to a passage like this, we should ask ourselves, is this happening in my life? If, you're, if you would consider yourself of the older crowd, is there an openness and a willingness in your life to step into the lives of those who are younger and, and, and not, not quite as far as you down the road of discipleship? Are you open to that? Are you willing to do that? Is that a part of your life? Are you intentionally seeking those relationships within the context of the church? And if you're in the younger category, are you humble enough to admit that you need that? Are you willing to invest the time that it would take to sit under the feet of someone you respect in the congregation and to learn and to grow? Paul says this needs to happen. This is a sign of a sound, healthy church. This is one of the marks. But also notice in these verses that there, Paul puts a lot of of weight in his instructions to young women. He he spends more words here in his instructions to them in verses 4 and 5. It says, And so train the young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind, and submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. Perhaps this cultural context wasn't that much different than our own. These are not popular words. They would not be popular instructions on any college campus, I can tell you that. That Paul, this man, is instructing women to have a focus at home, to to love their husbands and children, to... Um, to be submissive to their own husbands, that the Word of God, he, he ties this to the Word of God being reviled. There is more going on in the feminist agenda in our culture than we think. Paul says if, if we allow this thinking to infiltrate the church, if, if women quit focusing on the home, if they quit loving their husbands and children, if they neglect submitting to their husbands in love, We are in danger of the very word of God being reviled. This isn't just a throwaway issue for Paul. This wasn't some issue way down the list of things of importance because it keeps coming up again and again in the scriptures. Paul says, notice the order that God has ordained. That is how we adorn 
the doctrine of God. That is how we adorn the gospel. That is how we put clothes on it and show it and display it before a watching world. This is important, Paul says. Paul's got instructions here to slaves. Paul is not condoning slavery. In fact, he writes another letter to Philemon where Paul expresses more of his heart toward the institution of slavery, but this was a pre-existing reality. And so Paul says to slaves that they are to be submissive to their own masters in everything. They are to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith. He has instructions to the slaves because he is making the point that the gospel has implications for every one of us, no matter what area of life we find ourselves in at any given moment. You may be here tonight and you are in a difficult job. You are in a difficult situation. You may feel like you are in the midst of oppression. It would not adorn the doctrine of God for you to act rebellious. Paul says even slaves, even in something as unjust as slavery, we must allow the gospel to rule. But I want you to notice as we move through these verses what keeps coming up over and over and over again. He uses this phrase first in verse 2 in his instructions to older men. They are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled in verse 2. He says it again in verse 5 in the, in the way that the older women are to train the younger women to be self-controlled. Again in verse 6, the younger men are to be self-controlled. And then down in verse 12, when Paul talks about the gospel and reminds us of the gospel, he says that the gospel has appeared training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. Four times in these verses Paul draws attention to being self-controlled. He's talking here about appetites. He's talking here about our passions. This would include things like sexual immorality. This would include things like the way we, we eat food and the way we, we drink beverages. This would include emotions. This would include anger. This would include any time we allow something from outside of us or even something that wells up within us to control us. Paul says that does not adorn the doctrine of God. But, but he also keeps mentioning another word. And it, it, we first see it in verse 5 in his instructions to the wives. Uh, he says to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind, and submissive. Verse 5. In verse 9, he says it to the slaves. Slaves are to be submissive to their own masters in everything. And then in our, in our passage for next week, in, in chapter 3, verse 1, he says remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work. Paul is instructing the church to recognize the order that God has created in the universe. That in almost every area of life, God has created order in the sense of authority and those who are to submit themselves to that authority. And so we have instructions for all of us as we live in a nation that there is a government that we are to submit our lives to. 
When we get into the church, there is a submission that takes place to the leadership and to the whole body. When we get into the home, there is a submission that takes place as God has established the husband as the head of the home. Submission is an important aspect of the Christian life. Self-control is an important aspect of the Christian life. And yet we read those words and it sounds so oppressive to us. I don't want to submit to any authority. Or we come up with cliches like, the only authority I've got is God. And the problem with that is that God doesn't give you that option. If your only authority is God, then you better pay attention to who else God has put in authority over you. The point that we've got to come to grips with as we live in this age where freedom is defined by doing what we want to do and these words like self-control and submission seem to be so foreign to our notions of what it means to live as free human beings is that this indeed is actually what freedom is. Our unrestrained desires is not the way the world is supposed to be. That's not the way we're supposed to live. We're not, that's not normal. That's not the way God intended it to be. The gospel is in the business of restoring the universe. And self-control and submission is the way we respond. Not just to other human beings, but it's the way we respond to God, the giver of the gospel to us. We are going to live one day in an eternal kingdom. Where we will eternally submit to the authority of our King, Jesus Christ. We are going to live in an eternal kingdom. Where in our sanctified selves, we will have control over our desires and our appetites. We are charged as the church of the Lord Jesus Christ with the task of displaying the glories of that kingdom in the way we live our lives now. Self-control. Submission. This is freedom. This is joy because this is life as God made it to be. This is living in the world according to God's instruction manual. This is what it's all about. And as Christians, not only are we to embrace this, not only are we supposed to say, yes, I will submit. Yes, I will practice self-control because the gospel has given me the power to do that. But we must embrace these realities with joy in our hearts because there is a danger that even as we submit and even as we exercise self-control, we do it with an attitude as if it is the last thing in the world we want to be doing. I had a conversation this past T-ball season with one of my assistant T-ball coaches. And I said something, and as soon as it came out of my mouth, I wanted with all of my being to grab those words and bring them back in. But we were talking about a game or a practice or something we had scheduled on a Sunday. And I made the remark, I can't be there, I have to be at church. And immediately I thought, Oh, that's disgusting sounding. As if 
Church is the last place I want to be. I would much rather be here on the t-ball field than with the people of God. Because that's what he heard. As if I live this life of always doing things that God requires me to do that I really don't want to do. That's not honoring to the gospel. We must not live like Christianity is restraining us from doing what we really wish we could do. Well, I've got to submit to my husband. Or when we're at work, I really want to laugh at that nasty joke, but I'm a Christian. Or you know, I've, I've got to be at church, can't be there. That's not what Paul's calling for here. Implicit in these instructions is that we approach these realities with gladness and with joy because we are living out the reality that this is true freedom and the world doesn't have a clue what it looks like. We have to show them. Of all the people on the face of the planet, we are the ones who have been privileged to live by the power of God in the way that God intends humanity to live. What a glorious reality. But finally, look with me at the impossibility of freedom without Christ. Look at verse 11. 11 through 15. Paul says, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ, who gave Himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for Himself a people for His own possession who are zealous for good works. Most of the letters that Paul writes always begin with indicatives. Paul begins his letters to the churches and and usually it spans chapters. Paragraphs upon paragraphs upon paragraphs of Paul explaining the glories of the gospel. This is what God has done. This is what Christ has accomplished. This is how God has entered into history to save you from the mires of your rebellion and sin. And Paul always does that in every letter. But not in this letter. Not in this letter to Titus. Paul begins this letter and he pretty much launches straight into instructions for Titus. Straight into instructions and imperatives. It's not that he's left off the indicatives. I think, if I had to guess, Paul knows Titus very well. Paul and Titus have a bond, have a relationship, where perhaps Paul is assuming that when he writes this letter. But I want you to notice that Paul, even with a shared understanding of the indicatives, even with a shared understanding of the gospel, Paul cannot leave it behind. It's always in the corner of his mind. It's always right around the corner because nothing that he is writing makes sense unless it makes sense in light of the gospel. All of these imperatives, all of these instructions have to be rooted in what Paul is writing in verses 11 through 14. This is the only way freedom is possible. This is the only way it makes any sense. The historical reality of the gospel. The reality that Jesus Christ really did enter into history. The reality that in verse 11 that the grace of God has appeared bringing salvation for all people. 
this gospel, Paul shows us, has past implications. That happened in history. That historical event happened. Jesus really took on flesh. Jesus really lived a perfect life. Jesus really died on the cross. He really bore the wrath of God. And three days later, he really came back to life. That happened in the past. But, but Paul, Paul says, but, but as we think about verse 11, as we think about what happened in the past, the reality that salvation has come, not just for the Jews, not just for people in Lexington, not just for people in Ashland Avenue Baptist Church, the reality that salvation has come for all people. And Paul here means all the Gentiles, all the nations. Every tribe, tongue, people, language. But that has huge implications for the present. So in verse 12, he gets into the present. This past reality means in the present, it, has tra- it is training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. The past reality of Jesus' life, death, resurrection has unlocked for us a brand new way to be human beings. This is where the power comes from. And in verse 14, Paul is going gonna, is gonna to make an allusion to the exodus when he talks about how Jesus gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession. That's right out of the exodus. This, this cross event, what Christ has done in history was typified in the Exodus where God brought His people out of slavery. Christ in the Gospel has come to bring us out of slavery. And what does it look like to be brought out of slavery? Well, it looks like verse 12. To renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. That is what a life of true freedom looks like. We've tried living by our own desires, haven't we? Haven't you tried that? I tried it. I tried it for 20 years. I tried to define freedom by doing what I wanted to do, when I wanted to do it, and how I wanted to do it. And it led me to the pits of despair. And it led me to the realization that I was a slave to my own desires, that I was a slave to sin, and that my only hope was the Lord Jesus Christ and what He did for me on the cross and in His resurrection. I've tried it, and I'm sure you've tried it too. But God has come down in the gospel to free us from that foolish way of thinking. To show us what it truly looks like to live free lives and to show the world what the love of God really looks like. But not only does it have past implications, not only does it have present implications, there is a future implication in verse 13. As we are waiting for our blessed hope, hope here is not some uncertain thing. This isn't, this isn't rooting for Kentucky on Saturday's language. This is reality, our blessed hope. This is the certain future. This is what God has promised. We are waiting for our blessed hope. And here's what it is. The appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. 
we live these lives of freedom and the future is always in view. The day when the clouds will be parted and the sky will be split open and Christ our King will descend and He will establish His perfect kingdom on this earth forever and ever and ever. And the way we live in the present is supposed to picture that future kingdom now. We are able to exercise self-control now because we realize that there is glory for us then. We realize that one day God has a plan for us. God's desires for us are so much greater than the desires of our own heart. And so we seek to live in the present matching our desires to His. This Jesus who will return is the one who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Past, present, future. This is freedom. We get to the end of this section of this letter and we should probably conclude with the way that Paul concludes with his instructions to Titus in verse 15, his final word to Titus in this thought is to declare these things, exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you. What's he saying? He's saying, listen church, listen Titus, declare this reality, declare this freedom to the watching world. Show them that this is the way to live. Show them what it looks like to live for the glory of God and what it looks like to be truly free. Miley Cyrus isn't going to show them. Let's pray.